As I was praying uh, for 2024, thinking to myself, God, what would you have for your people? What would you say to your people? This is what I heard the Spirit say to me. And I trust that you would receive that this morning, that you'd be excited for the word that God gave, and that we would all uh, rejoice in what he has for us. So as we looked at the number uh, 2024, I don't know uh, if you know your Bible quite a lot, but there is a thing called biblical numerology, if you know that, that the numbers that we have actually mean something. And so as I was praying, what came to me was that the number two in 2024 stands for unity and stability. Now, if you go through the scriptures, you'd understand that we are told that out of the mouth of two witnesses, something is established. The word of God is established. The number two also speaks of the unification of God and his church, of a bride and her husband. That's why Jesus sent out his disciples two by two, because there's power in that number two. That's why scripture reminds us that when one is alone, he cannot help himself, but when another is with him, he is helped. And so we see the number two up there on the screen mean that God is going to give us stability and peace as we come into this year. Amen. But then the wonderful thing about 2024 is that there are two twos, not just one. So it's two squared. So there'll be double the power that you would be expecting in any other year because God is at work. And I thought to myself, wow, God. Two is really powerful, but God said, I'm not done yet. There's the number four in 2024. Now, you would know that on the fourth day, God made the celestial beings, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and by them, we can tell seasons and patterns of life. So I said, God, what does that mean? And God said, well, this means that in 2024, a new season is coming our way. It is through the stars that you can tell that there's a shift and there's a pattern that's happening in the sky. Scripture also speaks of the four corners of the world and also the four winds of God. So this says in 2024, God is going to move a wind toward you. Blessing is coming your way. Power is coming your way. And you would say, what season, what power is coming my way? Well, let's do some maths. What's two plus two? Plus four? Equals? 12. <laughs> 2 plus 2 plus 4 equals 8. And if you go through the scriptures, you realize that 8 is the biblical number for new beginnings. Jesus gave us 8 beatitudes because he said, this is the new way that we obey God. In Genesis, we see that when the flood took place, only eight survived, Noah and his family, which means even though the world is going hectic around you, you, because you're in the number eight, God has opened a door for you. So the year of 2024 is a year of new blessings, new ventures. You've been trusting God for a business. This is the year to start. Amen. If you say amen to that, you know that you can't come to church empty-handed. Right? And so in order for you to accept, receive this word of new beginnings, a shift in your life, I dare you to sow a seed. But not just any seed. We are taking seeds in the form of 2024. That's where we start. Is it up on the screen behind me? We're starting at 2,024 rand. 
If you want to walk into this blessing, 2,024 rand, maybe 20,024 or 200,024, or if God has really blessed you, 2,024,000. We are only taking offerings in that space, nothing else. And perhaps you are here this morning and you're saying, Pastor, I don't have all the money. That's fine. Choose whichever number you want and divide it by eight. Because this year, if you choose to give 20,024, that means you'll give 2,538 times to plug into this word. Right? Eight times. By the way, this seed that you're sowing is over and above your tithes. Don't cheat God. You're trying to sow into the word. You tithe to protect what you have. You sow to receive the word. Amen. Amen, Bazalwan. Can we have the offering basket already? <laughs> now, if you realize, let's go back to 2024, that in 2024, there's a number there, zero, right? If you're part of our church family, you would know that everything I just said is zero. As a church family, we don't do that. And I hope that if we ever did that, one of you would get up and say, Pastor, there's something wrong here. That, that illustration that I just did right there speaks to our message this morning. In my years of ministry, I've come to notice that many Christians see their pastor as the person who gives GPS instructions for the year ahead. So they come to the watch over service, they come to the first Sunday of the year because they know that the man of God is going to give us direction. And when he gives a direction, your year of opportunities turning, your year of businesses, whatever, they want to sow a seed into that, and then they start to skip church. Maybe they might join the fast for the first 21 days, but after that, they no longer bother with church because all they wanted was something for themselves. They might come back throughout the year, maybe twice or three times, just to make sure that the GPS is still right. I just want to make sure, I'm not really committed to what's happening, but I just want to make sure that the word I received in January still stands. These are the kind of people who go from church to church, looking for the next word. So when they see other Christians flourishing at such and such a church, they'll say, oh, that pastor, that pastor, he has the answer, let's go there. And when another one has better results, they want to be there. Because they're always after flourishing. And I know this morning, just like we all do, we laugh at such people. But these aren't the only believers who have those kind of quirks. Because as we look at the church today, there are other kinds of believers who are looking for a motivational coach. Someone who will get up at the beginning of the day and say, 2024 is your year, go for it, you can do all things. And Sunday in and Sunday out, you are looking just for that. Motivate me, push me in my job, push me in my family, push me in my marriage. It could be that you are looking for a therapist, a pastor who understands your feelings. Every Sunday is a therapy session. So how are you feeling? Just sit there. Oh, they hurt you. Okay. You know, Philippians 3.13 says, forgetting what is behind. Leave the toxic people behind. So you want to go to church because you want to feel safe and cuddly and warm. And they talk slowly to you and take your money at the end. Mm. 
Or maybe you are the kind of person who's looking for a church or a pastor who's very ceremonial. You want somebody who, to be there when you're getting married, when the babies are getting baptized, when there's a wedding, dedications, whatever. You are there, but never at other times. These are just some of the things that people look for in a church and in a pastor. But in all these four examples that I've given us this morning, you'll notice that the congregant is not engaged in what's happening in that church. All they are is a recipient of what is happening. In fact, very little is required from the congregant. All you need to do is show up, sit down, listen, participate, and be on your way. But here's the downside of that, is that if you only go to church as a spectator, then you're only bound to go to church when you need something. When you need a special word, that's when you go to church. Because you're not interwoven into the fabric of the congregation, you don't care what else happens to anyone else who would go there. And so as we kick off this year, I want to remind you, because this is not new, I want to remind you, I want to remind us that the church is not just here to meet your needs. It's not just here to meet your individual needs. But in order for the church to be the church, it needs you to be fully engaged in its life. You need to be an engaged participant in what's happening in the local church. Let's turn to the book of 1 Timothy chapter number 4. So Paul writes two letters to Timothy, who was a young protege, he was a young guy, and Paul sends him out to Ephesus to go plant churches and to look and to look after these churches. And so in both letters, he gives Timothy some godly wisdom on how to grow and shape these congregations that were young. So in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul talks about the qualifications or the criteria of a pastor. This is what a pastor should look like. And then chapter 4, which we're looking at today, he outlines what the pastor and by extension the congregation should do if they are to faithfully do the work of ministry. And so what we're looking at is how we as a congregation should be doing ministry for the glory of God and our good. Now in Ephesus there was one major problem is that there were false teachers who were present in the city. And these preachers were preaching everywhere, distorting the truth of the gospel and leading other believers astray. But we know that this is not a problem that Timothy faced because in Acts 20, Paul warns the Ephesian elders when they came to see him for the last time to say, guys, beware of false teaching. Paul's warning in Acts 20 is simply this, which he'll repeat to Timothy. Deception in the church will not necessarily come from outside the church. It'll come from within the church. It'll come from people you trust. So you should be doubly aware. So here's my big message, or my big idea for this message this morning is that our connection to our local church, that is True North for us, is vital. Our connection to True North Church is vital in how we journey as Christians. If you're a member here, 
how you're connected here is vital for your Christian flourishing. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. And he says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of faith and the good teaching that you have followed. But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body is limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Then verse 10, for this reason, because godliness is good even for life to come, for this reason we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Verse 13, until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Don't neglect the gift of God that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Practice these things, be committed to them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So throughout this letter, but specifically in chapter 4, you hear Paul saying, Timothy, teach the true word of God. Teach the true word of God. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to commit itself, it's supposed to be busy with teaching the truths that Jesus taught, affirming that over and over and over again. That's our primary task. As pastors, we're called to remind you, and you are to remind us of the grace and the generosity of God. You see, as human beings, we are tempted to forget that God is good. Because sometimes we look at our lives, we look at the surrounding world around us, and we go... God, things don't seem right in the world. We feel like Habakkuk. However, when we gather, when we congregate on Sundays like we are now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to put the correct perspective on life. You see, the church has been gathering on Sunday for the last 2,000 years because Jesus rose on this day. And so the church said, because Christ rose, we will celebrate his resurrection. And we will meet every Sunday to celebrate Him who has conquered all. And so when we gather here, we are saying collectively that Christ is risen and He has all authority in heaven and on earth. For the Christian, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. So we're coming together to partake in communion, in worship, in prayer. All of that declares that the kingdoms of this world are subject to Christ. Our situations are subject to Christ. Politics is subject to Christ. So when you come to church, this is what you should be taught. That Christ reigns supreme. So Paul says, if your pastor, if your MOG, that is man of God if you don't know, preaches anything else, he is distracted. Because verse 7, he says, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. You and I live in a world where everything wants to grab our attention. 
We're distracted by our jobs, by our families, by politics. And then we have entertainment to really distract us, to numb us from what's actually happening in this world. But when we get to church, it should be a place where devotion trumps our distraction. Because when we look to God, we see life in the world as they really are. Church is never meant to make us feel like the world. When we get caught up in the rat race, possessions, fame, and power, that's not the aim of the church. Do this to be rich. Do this to be powerful. That's not the aim of the church. Yes, we are called to be salt and light in this world, but earth is not our home. Or at least this earth, a new earth is coming. This earth is not our home. So all that you're amassing, your wealth, your power, when God says, actually, I've got something better for you, you are forsaking what God is promising for what the world desires. God calls us to be countercultural. That's why when you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, he called people to do different than what the culture was doing. And because God knows that being countercultural is hard, it's a steep hill to climb, God says, I save you. I give you new life, and then I put you in a community of faith where there are like minded people who will journey with you as all of you express my kingdom on this earth that is opposed to me. But Paul is even more direct than that because when he talks about the church in all his letters, even here, he uses familiar language. He doesn't say God has put you in a building. He says God has put you in a family. Church is a place you belong to, not that you go to. Church is like a close-knit family. And I know some of you don't like your family members. That's fine. But generally, in a good family, we love to spend time with one another. And because we are family, it should be a joy to spend Sundays together. It should be a joy to spend time in our virtual groups, in the, at the men's gathering, at the women's gathering, because we are family. Because church is a family. Because the more we see each other, the more we gather together, we're building relationships. We're building fortitude for the road ahead because opposition will come our way. But because we are strong, we will all hold on to the faith that we profess. Perhaps somebody is asking this morning, why does the church need to be so close? Why must the church be in my space? Paul says, if you are trying to attain godliness, you can't do it on your own. And because Paul was a real practical person, he gives us an analogy with exercise. You see, there are some people who are innately disciplined. These are the kind of people who will wake up, whether it's raining, whether Joburg is snow, whether it's hot, they will get up, lace up their shoes, go to gym, or be on the road running. 
From the look of your faces, I can see it's not most of us. <laughs> As your pastor, I know there are probably about this many in this church. The rest of us are the kind of people who not only desire but need help to stay on our exercise regimen. It could be simply your wife nudging you and saying, wake up, wake up. I know you can't wake up, wake up. A friend joining you or you being part of a club. The rest of us need people to motivate us so we can stay the course. So when Paul used that example, he's saying, guys, if you need help in your physical lives, what more about your spiritual life? Yes, even in the church, there are a few people who will wake up and read their Bibles and pray. They'll be generous with their time and with their resources. They will give. But most of us aren't wired that way. We need to be part of a church family so we are accountable. Because when we aren't part of community, we tend to backslide. And I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about doing less of what is spiritual. You wake up, and you know you should pray because this is the only time you have, but you're like, Ish, Instagram is more interesting. I'll pray later. I'll give up my time when I'm free and my money, Ish, at the end of the month when I know all my bills are paid and my debit orders are out. And if we continue to leave you on your own, what will happen is that you will be spiritually unfit not long from now. So Paul says you need to train. You need to train. You need to be trained up in godliness within the context of a family. And how do I know that? It's because of what he says in verse 12. He says, set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Verse 15, he says, practice these things, be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. How many of you grew up with siblings who are younger than you? Or even older, really? Those of you who are older, you would know, be an example to the little ones, ne? Be an example. I know, yeah, the firstborns like us, it was irritating. How do you set an example for the younger ones if you're not there? You set an example because you are there, right? That means your parents saying that to you implies that you are within sight. They can see how you respond. They can see how you do. I'll tell you a funny story. All black kids understand this. If you're born before 2000, you get this. When visitors come, we'd have to make tea. Yeah, you know that, right? You must take out the special cups with a special tray. Things that you never see when it's just us. And growing up, my mom would say, Babonse. Babonse was by saying the little ones. They must know. Because I don't want to tell the, tell the child in front of the visitors, not that teaspoon. And so I had to teach my brother and my sister all the time. This is how you carry the tray. This is how you present it. You don't just throw it. You do it gently and you smile. <laughs> Take out biscuits. Never make mama ask you for the next thing. They had to see me do it. So when they started doing it, 
It was because of how I taught them. Likewise, in the church, we or you, who is more mature, have to set an example. In other words, there is accountability in the church. Accountability can only take place when we are in the same environment. And when you look at verse 12 and 15, Paul is saying, you don't just attend church, you don't just show up and disappear. No, you must grow. You must grow in such a way that others can see you growing. And I know some of you who are clever will say, but he was writing to Timothy, so it's only for the pastor. That's not true. That's the ideal for all believers. Godliness is a call for all of us. And as he says, let your progress be evident to all. Because we know you. We're doing life together as a church community. We see what you're doing when you stumble, we're able to help you. Or maybe you're a great example, and we keep on looking. For, the, for those of you guys who are married and you're thinking that, ah, oh, five years is too long, we've got couples that have been married for more than 50 years here. That's a great example. You can look. How they do it. But still, we push on. We push on. So we need to be planted and growing in the community because that also allows us to give back to the body of Christ where you're not merely a spectator. Because it's in the church that we get to discover and utilize our spiritual gifts. Paul in Romans 12 says this about spiritual gifts. He says, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving, give with generosity. Leading, lead with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. And so in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 4, Paul encourages little Timmy not to sit on the gift that God gave him. He says, don't sit on that gift. See, there are some people here, though you come to church, you don't even know what your gift is. And the call is that when you're part of a local church, you should be open such that your gift is discovered. How do you discover your gift? We spoke about serving earlier on. That means you try everything. If you're bad with kids, we'll move you. If you're bad at greeting people, you have a sour face, we'll move you. But somewhere along the line, you'll find something that actually fits in with you. It could be like Timothy, your gift might be supernaturally revealed through a word of prophecy. But then, I love what Paul says. He says to him, use that gift which was discovered or given to you through the laying on of hands by the elders. In other words, the people who helped Timothy discover his gift were also the people who were there to make sure he uses it. Brown, we know you have a gift of prophecy, so we'll call you every now and then. Oh, but I'll make a mistake. That's fine. We'll move on. We're teaching you. We're training you. If you're prophesying, trust me, I will call you out. But we want to see that gift at work. And it's only when you're part of the family that we can see you grow and even begin to teach others in a specific area. 
As I read about this in 1 Timothy 4, I came to the conclusion that so you can be a Christian and, and be ineffective. You can be ineffective because you're not utilizing the gift that God has given you because you don't know it. But that also means that you could be robbing us as true North church of a gift in the body because you don't know what your gift is. So where we could be doing 100, maybe we're doing 50, 60, because your gift is one that should help us to 100. But I know that God is gracious and he'll send other people, but I would love for all of us to be so engaged in our local church that we are utilizing our gifts for the blessing of this church. But it's not just about what you can do and what you can discover in a local church. Paul also says when you're part of a healthy and growing faith community, you will be protected. He says that in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through the hypocrisy of lies whose consciences are seared, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So Paul says in later times, and I believe we are living in those later times. Anytime after Paul wrote this is later. We are later. It's 2,000 years later. We are later. Some believers will fall away due to teaching that is inspired by demons. In other words, listening to teaching that is taught by deceived teachers who deceive others. In Timothy's time, the false teachers preached against marriage, and they said, don't eat certain foods. So legalism was one of the things. The implications of saying people shouldn't get married was that God's idea of a family won't be seen, won't be realized. If you're all single, there are no babies, and you'll die. And secondly, the prohibition against eating certain foods really restricts what the church said in Acts 15, that Gentiles are free to do as they please, except in how they behave morally. And so as we look at the text, we know that in our day and age, we're not dealing with these heresies. We're not dealing with these problems. But my question to you would be, living in 2024, are you able to spot counterfeit gospels? Are you able to see the fake gospel? And I know immediately some of you are thinking of other guys where people congregate. No, that's easy to spot. Because those guys, truth be told, aren't even pastors. I don't want to mention their names. Those guys aren't pastors. They call themselves churches. They're not churches. Anyone can spot that. So I'll ask the question again. Are you able to spot counterfeit gospels? Because it's not just one gospel. There are many of them. See, many of you think that you can. But the truth is that Christians who don't regularly engage with other believers are vulnerable to false teaching. Because there's no one in your life who will say, hey, my friend, you know, that clip you sent me, that's not true. Let me explain this by way of illustration. I know some of you buy fancy sneakers, you wear exclusive watches, and you have nice handbags. How do you spot a fake handbag? Mm -hmm. 
Hey, people who are experts, hey. <laughs> you need to be well acquainted with the product, right? When you know what's genuine, you can tell what is fake. It's rather embarrassing when you see people with Gucci bags or nice sneakers and you're like, this says Likey, not Nike. This says Wutu, not Gucci. And you know that because you know what is genuine. And so you are able to spot what's fake. The whole idea of being in a church community where you are engaged, where you're involved, where you're reminding each other of the goodness of God is that all of us are always studying genuine gospel and we hold each other accountable to that. So when fake gospel shows up, we call it out. Over the holiday period, this is what I did with my time, I decided to listen to some of your favorite preachers and gospel artists. How do I know they're your favorites? Because on your Insta stories, you have their codes, on your WhatsApp things, you put the clips of their sermons. So I said, okay. Screenshot, 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 screenshot. <laughs> and over the holidays, I just took time. I said, let me find the whole sermon. I don't want to take anyone out of context. Let me find the whole sermon. And my wife will tell you, man, I sat on YouTube and whatnot listening. Hey, I want it to be fair, ne? And what I found is that some of the stuff that these guys said, and I'm going to be clear, I'm not naming any names. If you want names, talk to me afterwards. But you must come with a very expensive coffee for me to tell you. Some of the stuff they said is solid. But then they add other stuff. And then in the end, what you get is a mess. And how some of you get deceived is because Wilson preaches a sermon. And you hear what Wilson says, and then you hear what that guy that you like to listen to said something similar to Wilson. You're like, hey, this is the same. The Spirit of God is moving. Hey, my pastors are preaching the same thing. And then your guy goes left from what was the same. He goes left. Yeah, it, it preaches, but it's not sound. And because you really love your guy, you began to do what your guy said you must do. And after a while, you realize it doesn't work. Guess what? You blame God and you blame Wilson. You don't go to your internet preacher to say, hey, hey, what you said doesn't work. You blame God and you blame Wilson. And then you stop coming to church as if it was Wilson's fault that you don't know how to distinguish between good and bad. Child of God, if you're part of a church family, you can engage with what Wilson says. Because after church, you can corner him at the door and be like, hey, 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 you said something. Can you please explain? We've made ourselves available every Thursday to have coffee with you, and you can come, and some people have come to ask us questions about what we preach on Sundays. You see, as a church, even the pastors are accountable. It's not just you sit there, we entertain you, no. We are accountable. Because we're in Joburg, I can say this. As a pastor, I have postgraduate degrees in theology and Biblical studies. I've got degrees as many as many of you have. So I know what I'm doing. I've got years of ministry experience. But here's one thing that I know. Just because I have letters behind my name, just because I've got years of service, doesn't make me better than you. Doesn't make me superior to you. I am still called by God to be accountable to 
living by the word and teaching the word correctly. And so therefore, any of you is able at any given time to say, hey, pastor, yay, what you said is not correct. Maybe you felt you were in the spirit, but you were not. Even though you're wrong, it's fine. I'll entertain it. <laughs> That's what a church is. And I'll say this with a caveat. Please, there's a caveat here. When an engineer walks into the room and he's a PhD in engineering, we respect him, right? Not all of us can design a bridge. But in the church, it's slightly different. And, I'm, and there's, there's a caveat, guys. There's a caveat, a big one. Because I'm, I'm not saying all of us should just interpret the Bible as we want. But in a Christian community, that's why the word family is used. We should be able to engage in a way that an engineer and a novice can't. In the church of God, there's brotherhood. And I can say, Pastor, let's talk. Pastor, you're not living what you preach. There should be accountability. Here's the thing. None of the guys that you guys post are accountable to you. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't watch them. But they should be in addition to your main course at home. Because you belong here. For those of you who like eating junk food like KFC and McDonald's, you know that's not your main meal, ne? You eat at home. That's just a, a nibbling. That's how it should be, at least. I know in Jobek it's not, but that's how it should be. So for the rest of our time, I just want to quickly look at some of the deceptions. And as I said again, I repeat this again so you understand. I'm not mentioning any names. If you associate anything I say with somebody, that's you, on you, not on me. I just want us to look at some counterfeit gospels out there which people are being deceived and they're living in such a way that is not pleasing to God. Counterfeit gospel number one, fraudulent freedom. As Christians, we know that Christ has given us liberty. There's no legalism in God. We are free from the law. Paul says in Romans 16, though, what then? Should we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? He says, absolutely not. As a pastor, I come, a lot of, I come across a lot of Christians who are living their lives without boundaries. Christians who are swearing, they're living together, they're sleeping around, all the while claiming that Jesus is Lord. We spoke about drinking last year. And perhaps you're being influenced by some Christian artists and pastors and Christian artists who now become pastors all of a sudden when I thought you should stay in your lane and sing and not preach because you can't do the preaching, but anyway. Pastors who, when they're asked questions, are very ambiguous on answering certain lifestyle questions. Over December, I watched a popular gospel artist try to answer a question on dating, and I was like, I can't believe it, brother. You don't know how to answer that. And his answer was embarrassing, and I was like, I wonder how many people are going to listen to that nonsense and try and live it out. In Christ, we're free to live out our faith to the glory of God. We're still called to a life of sanctification. And what's more hurtful is that when you call out those Christians, they say, but Jesus told us not to judge. Really? Really? 
Maybe one day we'll, 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 teach, we'll teach that passage. Fraudulent freedom. We're free in Christ to live for Christ's glory, not free to sin. Not free to do things that God expressly forbid. As I said, I wish I could name names, but I won't. The second counterfeit gospel is church is not a building. And that's true. Church is not a building. We are the church. If anything, the pandemic showed us that church is not a building. However, church can't be you at home typing amen in the YouTube chat. Amen! Hallelujah! Church is God's people gathered. In the New Testament, a Greek word, ecclesia, is used, speaking of church. It's a Greek word that speaks of politics, but not a political association or an, or an organization. There were a ecclesia, a political body, only when they gathered in person. So the New Testament writers take that, and they use that New Testament to say, when we are gathered together physically, then we are an ecclesia. The rise of gifted communicators and worship leaders on YouTube cannot replace the gathering of God's people. It cannot replace our physical gathering. Because as an ecclesia, we are an, we are an earthly reflection of what will be in heaven. What does Revelation tell us? It says, at the end, there'll be people from every tribe, tribe, tongue, and language gathered around the throne of God. This is what a church here is a representation of. Being there in person. To worship God and be together. How do you practice Ecclesia when you're watching via screen? How do you do it? You can't do it. Counterfeit gospel number three, the universe loves me. There's a growing trend in our day and age, and I see some of your Instagram statuses. Guys are going to block me now. Don't worry, guys. I've got multiple accounts. You'll know, you'll know, we won't know I'm following you. Don't worry. You are, I've got multiple accounts following you. It's okay. Where the universe loves me. You know, we live in the time of affirmation. I must say good things to myself. Look in the mirror. You are loved for just being who you are. You are loved for just existing. Things like, I'm at the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Mm. There's nothing wrong with affirmations. There's nothing wrong with saying good things to yourself and over yourself. The problem is when Christians start to look to self-help gurus, and they look to new age practitioners for affirmations. There are sermons that I listened to over December where the preacher would say something, and I'm like, oh, that's a nice, that's a nice uh, quote. And I Google it, I'm like, oh, you got it from there, from that book you're reading, which is not a book that speaks about Jesus. It leads you somewhere else. Friends, that can't be. The scriptures of Jesus Christ have enough affirmations for you. You can never exhaust what God has to say about you. You are a child of God, not a child of the universe. Your father is the creator of the universe. So it's not for you to be asking the universe for permission. Universe, can I do this? No, God. Scripture says you are wonderfully made. And so affirmations have to be something that we find in the scriptures. Get yourself a Bible concordance and look and say, God, what are you saying about me? Begin to declare that over your life. 
and not some junky stuff. The fourth one is church hurt. We spoke about this a while ago, maybe 18 months ago or so. So let me be clear. Church hurt is real. Church hurt is real. There are some of you who have experienced it. I've experienced it. So even as I speak this morning, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to be insensitive. I, I am speaking with love and empathy. I'm also speaking with truth. The church of Jesus Christ, even this local church, is made up of fallible human beings, just like you are. And people hurt each other. That happens. If you're going to be with people, you're going to be hurt. I can sit you down and tell you stories that will grow hair on your chest about what people have done to other people, what believers have done to other believers. And so the growing trend in Christian circles is now, you see this in blogs and on Twitter, whatever else, uh, Christians are saying, well, if you've been hurt, leave. Leave the church. And there's nothing wrong with leaving a toxic environment. It's not healthy for you. But they never complete the loop. They say, leave the church and go and have church by yourself. They don't say, leave the toxic church and go find another church to belong to, which will be healthier for you. That is a false gospel. Because yes, it is in the church where some of us will come across our greatest hurts. But it's also in the church where some of our greatest healings will come from. God wants us to work through the pain and to be healed and whole. Over the holidays, like I said, I listened to a pastor who is a church of 10,000 people. And he, when he shared his we shared your story, I was like, I feel you, brother. And he says this. Sometimes as a pastor, church people will never understand that you face more church hurt than most of them. Because I, Wilson, don't face church hurt from one or two people. It's from anything and everybody. Where with you, maybe somebody didn't say hi, and you're upset. You know, when people say, Pastor, can I have coffee with you? I've kind of figured out which coffee it is. There's a good coffee. There's the, I want to understand coffee. Then there's the, oh, people at your church are like this. And I'm like, okay. Church hurt is real. However, we are called to find healing and completeness in Christ. And not shun the body of Christ. Trust me, as like I said... If I was to ask 100 pastors if they would do this tomorrow, most of them would like, oh, based on the church hurt they've received, most of them will say, no, thank you. But because we are called to walk out this journey in loving, we get up and we love. So let this place, if you've experienced church hurt in your life, let this place, let True North Church be a place where you will find healing. We're not perfect, but we're sure striving to be like Jesus. Fifth one, we're almost done. Deconstruction. 
We smile because a lot of you guys went through, went through deconstruction in 2020, right? And uh, some of you guys grew up in the, far less, in the far left, charismatic stuff. And as you came to Joburg, you realized that some of the stuff was not so true. Some of you guys went through Vasti, you got saved under the far right, uh, five-point Calvinism. And then they showed you flames during uh, Black Lives Matter. So you began to deconstruct your faith. Actually, deconstruction means breaking down faith. And so there's two ways you can deconstruct. We can deconstruct within a local church like this. And I've had countless conversations with many of you guys about how your faith doesn't make sense. I'm more than happy to have that conversation. How your faith doesn't make sense. And we go from a broad place to a narrow place. But it's always about wanting to know God more. I want to have a more authentic faith. And there are certain things that I need to remove from my life because they were wrong theologically or um, in terms of action. And that's a good place to deconstruct. For example, if you wrestle with, is Christianity a white man's religion? We can question that and arrive at a healthy place where you realize that the oldest Bible in the world is actually in Ethiopia. The oldest church in the world is actually in Ethiopia. So there's your answer. Then there's the other way you can deconstruct, where people come with a chip on their shoulder. And it's not to ask, it's not, not to learn, it's not to question, but to say, how dare God? send people to hell. Who does God think he is? When we start there, there's no way we can actually reconstruct. Because you deconstruct in order to reconstruct to a more authentic faith. And this encouragement of deconstruction by certain Christian or Christian celebrities and authors leads people to walk away from God. Because they're not giving you a solution, they are spewing out bile and anger at things that didn't work in their lives. But when you are part of a local church, we're able to wrestle through this together. So if we ever say, and I'll use this terminology because we all understand it, so if we ever say that you backslid, we can say we tried to journey with you, but you still chose what you chose. It didn't just happen. We were there as community. These are some of the false gospels of our time, and then I just want to do one more. Can I do one more? Amen, amen. Because there's another one which I think most of us don't realize, but it's present, and that's busyness. There's a gospel of busyness. Here in Joburg, we're told that the city is so busy, it's so busy that it swallows up people. Things get so busy in Joburg that the only free day we have to do our stuff becomes Sunday. So we choose to sleep in, we choose to do other things which we couldn't do on any other day on Sunday. Perhaps you start with, hey, let me miss one or two Sundays, they'll understand, and then one or two Sundays ends up being three or four, and then God didn't strike you, ah, two months. And then all of a sudden, you claim that you're a Christian who is never engaged in any local church. All in the name of busy, 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 busy. I get it. Joburg is busy. I get it that this is my full-time job. So you can say, yeah, you're going to work. But here's the thing. I began to look at some of the richest and busiest people in Joburg. And I began to look at their faith. And you know what? What I discovered? Some of them close their shops on a Friday afternoon. 
Hey, man, there's money out there. I don't care. They close their shops so they can go and worship. Watch this. They don't go close their shops in order to watch a YouTube stream. They close their shops to go and worship in community. The rest of us accommodate that. We will pack our cars and wait. When are these people coming back? When are these people coming back? There are some top directors and executives here in Joburg. In those shiny buildings just down the road, who will say to you, from sunset on Friday until sunset on Saturday, you won't find me. My phone is off. But you're the boss. We need you. Yeah. When I'm done with worship, when I'm done with my community, I'll respond. These are some of the hardest working people, some of the busiest people we know, but they make room to worship their God. But somehow as Christians, we who have been freed by Christ, we whom we declare that God came down to die on our behalf, choose to make excuses when it comes to going to church on Sunday. Now, don't be that extra person who says, but I, something came up. No, no, I'm not talking about emergency things. I'm talking about an intentional behavior where for you Sunday is about let me sleep in a little longer. Let me ride a bit longer. Let me run a bit further to the neglect of gathering with God's people. Wouldn't it be countercultural like for you as a Christian to say next time the boss says, hey guys, we're meeting on Sunday morning to do some work, to catch up and work. You're like, hey boss, I'm a good worker. I'll come after church. What do you mean? I need church. Because for me to be the person that I am here, who's a hard worker and do my work, I need church. It's not an option for me. It's something I need. Just like you need whatever you need, I need church. If you are a diligent person in the week, no boss will have a problem with that. Because they know that I trust this person. Think about it as parents. What example are you setting, are you setting for your kids? Church is an option that we go to when we choose. And then you come to me when your child is 20, Pastor, he's not serving God. What else do you think? What do you expect? Guys, while our kids live in our house, it's a season of brainwashing. I don't care, but it's a season of brainwashing. Other people brainwash their kids in whatever religion. I brainwash them in Jesus. And I'm brainwashing them. Sunday is church. Sunday is church. I don't care what happens. Sunday is church. Even if it means we must go to some other church, we will do it. Realize this, guys. It's important for our faith. And so as we sit at the top of the hour, our posture toward God's people matters. Last week we spoke about our posture of faith. I would say you show your faith in God by how you treat God's people. And God has saved us and put us in a family, and he wants you to be involved and engaged in it. 
And maybe perhaps this year in 2024, you can declutter your life and say, God, I want to be dedicated to your people. I want to be dedicated to your church. I want to, I want to serve. I want to, I want to serve. I want to be served. But I just want to be with your people. And let's see what God does in your life, through your life, in the lives of other people as we all celebrate what Christ has done for us.